Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. And we're we're live. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to the Cribsiders, everyone. Hey, y'all. What's up? Justin Burke here, joined tonight by Dr. Krista Chumanchu and our phenomenal producer, Dr. Becca Raymond Colker. Becca, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Great to have you back. Our guest tonight, Dr. Med Scheffler, here to discuss medication safety, a great uh, pearl-filled episode of tangible things you can do in practice, whether outpatient or inpatient. But before we go into the content, hey, Chris, can you tell us about the show? Yeah, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast, where we interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Tonight, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Meg Scheffler. Dr. Scheffler is a board-certified pediatric intensivist who has been attending in the ICU and pediatric sedation service of Hasbro Children's Hospital since 2012. She completed her residency in pediatrics and her fellowship in pediatric critical care medicine at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. What up, Texas? Um, As an AMS faculty member, she works with medical students, residents, and fellows to educate about the care of critically ill children, and her scholarship is focused on safe and effective uses of medications in children, including quality and safety improvement for medication use in children and determining pediatric-specific pharmacokinetics of medications used in children. Tonight, Dr. Scheffler teaches us life-saving pearls that you can use today to prevent medication errors. So without further ado, I guess we should get to it. I don't have a pun. (laughs) You don't have a pun? That's a tough pill to swallow. Is it? I don't know what But what's the dose of that pill? All right, so we can go ahead and get started, and we today are welcoming Dr. Meg Scheffler uh, to the Cribsiders. Meg, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Uh, We are very excited to have you. We already went through the formalities, but I want to do it on air. Is it okay if we go uh, by your first name and refer to you as Meg throughout the show? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I feel like we're old friends now, uh, already on the first name basis. I obviously now we're on the first name basis. We're super close, but our audience would love to get to know you a little bit better. And so I would love to hear you kind of give yourself a a one-liner, describe yourself to our audience. What are some things um, about you and maybe something that uh, you're interested in outside of medicine? Yeah. So I am a pediatric intensivist at um, Hasbro Children's Hospital in Rhode Island. I don't know if I should say my institution. Yeah. I'm a New Englander, though I trained in Texas, so I was at Baylor College of Medicine for six years for residency and fellowship, um, but came back after marrying and having my first child, and I have three kids now, and so outside of being an intensivist, I am a busy mom, and then this past summer, we, the entire family, got super into uh, shore fishing, (laughs) so now we all have fishing licenses and our own rods, yep, our own rods and reels, and uh, are big into fishing and pretend that we are successful (laughs) at it. That right. so shore fishing presumably is fishing from the shore as opposed to a boat, but like ocean right. water fishing, and that requires a life. What what do you catch from the shore? Uh, uh, uh catfish. Like, um, you can oh. catch. Yeah, so there are a bunch of ponds and lakes both in Rhode Island. I think all over New England, honestly, but right. Rhode Island and Massachusetts that they stock, and so at various seasons you can just uh. go and catch trout or catfish or other stocked um we actually went fishing in roger williams park so not too far from the zoo it was like right in the middle of sort of an urban kind of area but in the park and caught little sunfish uh like things and we are catch and release so we just toss them back in there but most of the time you're not catching anything you're just standing peacefully on the shore with some boots on in the water enjoying the nature and the weather and it's so relaxing so i if i catch a fish i get excited and that's a thrill also but peace that comes with just standing there and admiring the nature for like 3 hours is 
unsurpassed in my experience. Nice. That's amazing. Nice. Yeah, that sounds yeah. nice. Maybe I'll get into shore fishing. Have you <laughs> ever heard of the, the Japanese form of fishing called tenkara? No. How do they do that? So it's a it's a long flexible pole and the pole is about the same half almost the same length as the the line. Yeah. And it's sort of a it's a fly fishing type uh, but there's no reel and it's great cuz it's you can just carry a rod around. Um, I have one that collapses really easily and you can just pull it out and just go fishing quickly. You don't have to worry about all sorts of things and oh. uh, you should look up tenkara fishing. I bet you if you do some couple YouTube videos you 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 get hooked. I would love that because absolutely the next step is to figure out how to learn how to fly fish because I saw someone doing it um, where my husband and I were fishing last and it looked amazing and even more peaceful. So I was like, yes, that's what I want to do. And you can take classes through like L.L. Bean and stuff like that. So it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> and the one that Chris has is portable. I mean, he'll take it out, you know, at the restaurants, just anywhere, walking around the street. That, that, well, it's meant, it meant for like Japanese businessmen who want to just do it on their lunchtime. That's amazing. And, that's so cool. I, yeah. No, I'm week. definitely going to – I'm going to make a note. I'm going to look it up. Tenkara. Awesome. Excellent. <laughs> Wow. Um, so I, I could keep asking you questions about fishing. I'm super intrigued, um, but I'm going to pivot. Um, and, you know, I'm on vacation this week. It's it's a rare feeling. Um, I got some books lined up, but um, what is a book that you think every physician should read or, or every person should read or just a book you liked? Oh, my gosh. There are so many books that I, this is hard. You should have emailed this in advance. I'm oh, sorry. I'm, it can be any bad. book. Just name a book that you saw once. It can be. Yeah. You saw it. One fish, so, two fish, uh, fish. One of my favorite books, um, my fa- one of my favorite authors is a guy named Mark Helperin, and he wrote a book called A Soldier of the Great War, which is all about this guy's, he's explaining his life, being a soldier and what came after to a younger man on a very long bus trip across Italy. He also wrote a book called Freddie and Frederica, and in his books, everything is very hyper-realistic and his grasp of language and his ability to carry the narrative forward and keep your interest even without a lot of dialogue is pretty amazing. But he always has elements of the fantastical in his books. And so he'll start telling this story and it's hyper-realistic and you're getting into it and you're hooked in and then it just veers off in this direction that's completely incompatible with the laws of physics and and you just buy into it. You completely suspend disbelief and buy into it and it turns his novels into really, really fun escapist reads but also really emotional because he gets you involved in his character's lives so well. So I love his book, his books. And then um, for nonfiction, I just finished... Isabel Wilkerson's cast, which was also a really great read, and you guys have probably read it already or or heard other people talking about it. And she gave a talk that I attended and was, uh, you know, she was a very well-spoken person. And then when I read her, I mean, she's just an incredible journalist and author too. So even though it's heavy, sad stuff, it goes really quickly and is also still very engaging and, and educational. So those the, Mark Helper and the author and pretty much anything he read or wrote rather and then uh, cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Those are awesome recommendations. I actually have not read either of them. So this is this is very helpful for me. And then Sally Thorne for trashy beach reads. <laughs> <laughs> okay, added into the list. Love yeah. it. Wow. <laughs> Um, I guess uh, my, well, my, my question I like to ask is what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Oh, my favorite failure is the fact that I failed to get into medical school the first time I applied. And I mean, I don't know that it's my favorite. There have been so many now. (laughs) But the thing that I learned from that is that, uh, you know, you, first of all, it taught me just how much I really wanted to go. I think sometimes if people tell you that you can't do something and you were maybe on the fence, um, it helps you figure out, it helps you hop off that fence in one way or another. So I had friends uh, from college who also didn't get in and then they sort of found a different path and I didn't get in and I was like, but wait, no, that's really, that's the thing I'm supposed to be doing. I, I really meant it when I applied. And so I really like buckled down and nose to the grindstone and did extra academic work and extra like volunteering and anything I could do to make myself look like an attractive candidate. And, um, and so that I did get in the second time and then it was great for me. I know this doesn't happen to everyone. I was so lucky. I showed up to medical school and realized going through medical school that it had been the right decision. And then I 
I showed up to pediatric residency and was like, oh, thank God, this is the right discipline, because probably you've all met folks by now who showed up and were like, oh, oops, you know, <laughs> like I had a friend who, who was a mayor. Um, who was a MedPeds resident who um, halfway through residency was like, you know, actually, I think I'm an ENT guy. <laughs> and I, I met an orthopedic surgery resident who was like, I actually want to be on the other side of the curtain and change disciplines and went to anesthesia. And so every step of my career, I've been lucky enough to show up at residency, at fellowship, at my current job and at my current institution and be like, yep, this was the right call. I'm in the right place, which is so lucky. I, I just don't think that most people get to have that direct of a path after, you know, a little detour through, you know, no thank you land when they said, you don't, you, you don't come get to come here. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so important, but even like for your friends who at least realize that they were in the wrong specialty that, you know, don't be afraid to go and make that change and be happy. I think that's also a good, good takeaway. Oh, absolutely. I counsel, yeah, at every level when I'm counseling, if it's like college students or medical students, I was talking to someone the other day when she was trying to figure out how to rank her match list, you know, leading up to the match. And I was like, you know, they, they sell it to you like this path set in stone, and it is just not that. And if you go and treat it that way and sacrifice your ultimate destination to satisfy someone else's idea about, you know, whether or not there's going to be a gap at the call schedule if you change disciplines, you know, that you will just always regret it. Whatever, the, the it's such a difficult, as you guys know, it's such an onerous path. It takes so long and so much energy if the job you get at the end of the path isn't what you wanted, then it's then none of it is worth it. And so I, you know, I know so many people who've taken detours, who left residency for a different discipline, or even the same discipline but a different program, or left fellowship for a different discipline, or or to become generalists instead of special, subspecialists. And no, you know, they it doesn't doesn't set people back. I think there's a fear that it's that there will be a punitive result if you do that, and I have just never witnessed that. And you know. Know, everybody who ends up getting the job that they really wanted as opposed to the one that they first went after is so much happier yeah part of the path the obstacle is yeah. the way kind of thing yeah um yeah yeah i think that's great this is a a very inspirational start and i appreciate you you shared and i think that <laughs> it's it's nice to hear narratives um from people who have found significant uh you know enormous success and and the kind of the path that that led them there and and got them to a happy part where they're enjoying everything that they do, which is um, really great and really great to hear. Yeah. <laughs> let's, um, let's dive into some content. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's do, do it. it. Becca, you want to, you want to start us yeah. off? Yeah. You know, so I, I think, you know, I generally like to start with a case, but it, first we just got to kind of like address the elephant in the room, which is, you know, Meg, you pitched this topic to me um, months ago when I was on my, first rotation of intern year in the PICU with you. And you were like, let's do an episode on medication safety. Yeah. The and sexiest topic known <laughs> to man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, is this a boring topic? Is every, should everyone go to bed right now? Like what, it, what does medication safety mean to you? Like, why did you want to talk about this? Oh, I wanted to talk about it because it is so complicated and so pervasive. And at the same time, or the issue of getting it right is so complicated and so pervasive and yet so subtle and below everyone's radar. The fact that we're getting it wrong so often is not discussed enough in my humble opinion. So no, people should not go to sleep. People should listen. Um, someone that I was talking to recently said it best when she said that for us, medicines are our scalpel. And I've said things like, kind of like that in the past where, you know, we're not, we're not going to be the wrong site surgeon, you know, we're not going to be the person who fails to mark the right place and, and puts a piece of plastic in the wrong place or, you know, where most of us won't. But what we do every day is prescribe medicines for kids and it is so complicated and I don't think we 
acknowledge or give it enough credit for how complicated it is. And we get it wrong. I mean, not 100% wrong, obviously, thank God. But because it is so complicated, just getting one or two elements wrong is enough to really put somebody in harm's way. Medication errors, inpatient or outpatient, far outstrip for pediatrics any other healthcare-associated error. I mean, it's just not even a competition. It's, you know, number one, two, three, four, five. Like, and so when I started learning about it and learning, first of all, just how often it happened, which is scary, but also how complicated it is and intimidating it is for people try and get everything about it right. It just, it really, first of all, got really excited about it, really nerded out on it. And then any opportunity to talk to people about it and give them some simple ideas for things that they could do like start doing this today and you will make your patients safer. Isn't that nice? It's, and it's, it's the, people don't have to tackle the whole system, um, but I would like people to take a little bit more responsibility for their part of the system. <laughs> and yeah. so that's why I was like, ooh, a new outlet to talk about this super fun <laughs> thing. <laughs> I, I love that. And I think, you know, a lot of what we love to do on this podcast is try to, you know, talk about big topics, but boil it down to what are some practical takeaways that at any level of training or or practice that you can you can um, you can bring to your practice to enhance your care of patients, and that's yeah. so that's really exciting. Um, so let's let's just talk about a case first. Um, so we have Millie. Um, she's a three year old brought into the ER by her parents, um, the Grams. And um, <laughs> both parents are very concerned because for the past two days, Millie had a fever that won't budge despite giving her around-the-clock medicine. Um, you know, aside from the fever, Millie's been overall well and just ex- exhibiting some, you know, sniffles, uh, you know, little little cough. Um, so, you know, aside from all of the diagnostic questions that we might ask, you know, a patient coming into the to the ER with some, you know, fever and, and some, you know, mild upper respiratory symptoms. How might you address the concern of a fever unresponsive to Tylenol and ibuprofen? Yeah, so um, I'm not personally that afraid of fevers. And so even before I talk to families about medications to control them, I usually try and normalize it a little bit. You know, the fever is your body's normal response to getting an infection. And so it's the body is doing what it's intended to do. But obviously persistent fevers make kids really uncomfortable and it's difficult to get rest and participate in, you know, daily activities. And so uh, in that sense, it's important to try and keep the kids um, from getting too miserable. Uh, And then I guess we won't get into what would happen if this persistent fever lasted, you know, beyond five days or something like that. Another episode. (laughs) Another episode. But obviously there's a chance, I I would have two big concerns from that story. The first concern is, um, you know, around the clock medicine, if it's being dosed correctly and the fever really isn't responding or going down, would have me thinking that maybe this kid is a little bit sicker than than other kids are. But then the second big concern is like around the clock medicine is very, really hard to do correctly and safely. And especially if you're trying to do what a lot of families have been counseled to do, which is alternate acetaminophen and ibuprofen and give one of those things every three hours. Uh, in fact, there's research, ooh, evidence-based, uh, there's research showing that that kind of regimen uh, where you are trying to alternate medicines um, and give something every few hours is an independent risk factor for dosing errors and a medication adverse event. The other thing that's an independent risk factor is if you have more than one caregiver trying to give medications. And so if both grandparents are trying to keep on top of Millie's fever and neither of them are quite certain which medicine has been given most recently, then that's another independent risk factor for for somebody getting overdosed. And, you know, we're lucky that most medicines used for children have sort of large therapeutic windows and can be forgiving, but not always for sure. Can I ask an evidence-based follow-up, the uh, alternating medication causing medical errors, is that, I assume, in the outpatient setting specifically? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So there are problems on the inpatient setting with transitions of care. And so if you start a regimen like that in the emergency department and the patient stays in the emergency department longer than you anticipate, or maybe they go to an observation unit and are there for 12 to 18 hours before they get admitted, transitions of care introduce error too. And so it you know, becomes uh, critical that the person who's been administering those medicines either over a shift or over a couple of shifts correctly transfers the information to the person accepting care for that patient. So nurses typically, um, so that the nurse who's picking up the patient will correctly understand which medicine is next available. Um, so I think it can it can absolutely happen on the inpatient side, but for sure on the outpatient side, it's one of those commonly recommended or discussed strategies for children that is also really um, ripe for error. <laughs> so what would be your suggestion as an alternative to suggesting that? So again, I think if we can sort of normalize, I think, you know, the safest thing is to, is to minimize as much medication exposure as you can. And so if you can... Uh, get families to, if you can understand how the fever curve has been going, reassure yourself that it's not curving in the in a dangerous or, or a direction that makes you think of a red flag, and instead just kind of normalize it. Like, I think this really is consistent with an upper respiratory infection as opposed to, wow, that's, that's strange. Maybe this is an upper respiratory infection that's now gotten complicated by an otitis media or a UTI or something like that. Then saying, you know, it's, it's okay, as long as she's acting pretty well and eating and drinking well and she's going to not feel great and she's going to be taking time and not be as plateful as you're used to but um, and maybe you want to try and control the fever at night so she can sleep better but really let's see if we can't get by with just one of these medicines which do you think works better for her you know most kids respond better to one versus the other Um, my kids for some reason were never big acetaminophen fans but uh you know, I also didn't give them a lot because of exactly <laughs> what I'm describing to you. I'm like, ah. Hashtag team ibuprofen, yeah. <laughs> right. I, um, Somet- sometimes it depends which flavor you have, you could find. You know? I know, like, they were I have not... one kid who likes bubble gum, another one who likes grape. And so like, which one's the grape and which one's the bubble gum I have in, in the shelf, so. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of variables in, in, these, in these medications. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I was just saying, I was just... one of the things, I'm sorry, back up, please. We were like both excited. I, I want to hear what your next question is, Justin. My my next question was uh, as as scripted, talking a little bit about weight based dosing. I think, especially coming from a med peds background, switching from medicine to pediatrics, that was one of the most challenging things. Especially when sometimes uh, I think most a lot of med peds residents pick up on this, the pediatric dosing for things like ceftriaxone or prednisone or albuterol. Sometimes the weight based dosing goes above what we're traditionally doing as adult dosing. Yeah. And uh, I imagine that this is a ripe area for medication error. Um, I don't know if that that weighs out it in is. the evidence. But yeah, uh, can you talk a little about weight-based dosing and complications or what? Yeah. how you counsel on weight-based dosing maybe? So obviously weight-based dosing in theory or generally and typically is safer. So a tiny baby should not be getting the same dose as a 50 kilo 14 year old. Um, And so weight based dosing is absolutely mandatory in that regard to keep children who are at different ages and sizes and developmental stages safe. It is interesting that yes, sometimes weight based dosing uh, will exceed the adult dose. For that reason, most children's hospitals now actually have thresholds above which, and it's usually 50 kilos, above which a kid will transition to the adult if it's not, if like if it's a children's hospital associated with an adult hospital or, or a children's uh, ward in an adult hospital, transition to more adult-based dosing. And I think that's um, actually true even at all children's hospitals. Like just at 50 kilos and above, you just start getting a gram of this and a liter of that. The interesting thing on the outpatient side is that uh, they've done some research showing that families with limited health literacy, which is almost everybody at some point, like I am very health literate and obviously as a physician, and yet like there are some things about insurance that I still don't understand. 
Or if my child is the one who's currently in the emergency department for trauma of some kind or breaking an arm or whatever, I'm not going to be at my, I'm not bringing my A game in that moment. So, but definitely families with limited health literacy, they've interviewed and discovered that they had no idea that their child was getting a weight-based dose. They have no idea what that is. They, it never occurred to them that their two-year-old gets a different dose than their seven or 10 year old. Uh, And so it is something that's ripe for error because to quote a family member that I was just talking to the other day, um, we don't know what it is we don't know. And so they have no idea that weight-based dosing is a thing. And it's one of the biggest challenges for outpatient prescribing. And it's one of the reasons that it is incumbent upon providers who write prescriptions to make sure that families understand each element of the prescription. And it's even more important or upstream from that, it's incumbent upon the provider to understand and make sure that they, the provider knows what the elements of a prescription are and how they need to counsel families. Because families need to know not just the drug and why it's being given, which is another interesting thing that I think we sometimes fail to communicate with families. We say, oh, I'm just, I think your son has an infection. I'm going to give him this prescription. When in fact, I think your son has an ear infection. I'm going to give him this antibiotic for 10 days. You know, families don't always understand that they need to take it for 10 days and then stop. But also your son needs to get 100 milligrams of this medication and it's going to be five milliliters. I mean, that that's, that's one of the things that really I wish we had a better system for as a physician, I have to worry pretty much exclusively about dose, but the families that have to administer the medication have to worry about the dose and also the volume that that dose is going to be in. And so they have to know two numbers, which is very confusing, particularly for people of limited health literacy. And then if you have one child getting one volume and another child getting another a different one because they're different sizes, then it's even more confusing and complicated. So weight-based dosing is mandatory and what we need to do and absolutely adds additional complexity and burden on families to understand what it is that's going on. So we've talked a a lot about acetaminophen and ibuprofen and a little bit about antibiotics. You know, are are there other really common medications that are often misdosed? Is it just any any medication that has a concentration that we have to give? Is this something we have to worry about for all of them? Yes. something you have to worry about for everything. The most common ones are antibiotics. Um, and the and the families typically seem to, or the, the literature seems to show that families seem to fall back on volumes. And so uh, they may not understand completely the dose in terms of milligrams, but they will hang on to the volume. And so the biggest source of dosing error is families misunderstanding volume, particularly if we use vernacular. So we should never, ever, as providers, ever, 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 ever use vernacular like teaspoon or tablespoon to describe a dose. (laughs) When we do that, the literature shows that families think of a kitchen spoon and kitchen spoons are not standard units of measure. They don't use the teaspoon from the measuring spoon. They use the te- they use their kitchen spoon. And so they did an interesting study where they measured a bunch of commercially available spoons and documented that the volumes ranged from less than two milliliters to greater than nine. And so if you expect someone to give two and a half milliliters and they get nine, um, you've given them essentially That's a too much. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh and gosh, if you do yeah. it one time, okay. But if you do it Ooh. every time and it's a twice a day or three times a day medicine, then... Not great. No. It sort of reminds me of, um, there's this YouTube channel that I watch called Glenn and Friends Cooking. Mm-hmm. And he does a whole bunch of like old recipes. Like he'll literally take out an old cookbook from, it, from yeah. the 1800s and cook from it. That's awesome. And, and, but they'll have standardized measurements or non-standardized measurements from like Europe and France or yeah. even just like weird places in the Midwest. And he's like, well, we're just going to assume what they mean when put, put in a teacup worth of this. Yeah. And so every time I think about that, it's like... Yeah, it's just completely non-standard. I know. That's exactly, exactly it. One thing that you were just mentioning kind of brought up a question for me, Meg, which is kind of around not just the the dose that we um, prescribe, 
based on weight of our pediatric patients, but also um, something that I think also comes up a lot when we're starting patients on medications in the hospital, but we're going to send them home, um, is about sort of uh, how many times a day the medication should be dosed. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could speak to that and sort of, and how we kind of, how you conceptualize that in terms of medication error. Like, you know, you have a medication that in terms of its ideal pharmaco pharmacokinetics, yeah. you know, it should be four times a day, QID or Q six hours or, or whatever. Um, how do you kind of think about that with medication error? So I, th I think... I put it into sort of two buckets. The first bucket is what we all know and familiar with as people and human beings, not just physicians. The more times a day you ask someone to give a medication, the fewer uh, doses they will actually get. So if you have the option to prescribe a regimen that has fewer doses, if you can do something once a day or twice a day instead of three or four times a day, then you will automatically be um, helping to support that family, be more successful adhering to that regimen. It's just so complicated. I, I cannot imagine trying to dose one of my children four times a day. I wouldn't be responsible for it half the time because half the time they're at school or daycare. And so again, that introduces more caregivers, making sure all the caregivers understand and, and that's um, not always easy to do. So if you have the choice to limit those kinds of complicated regimens, you should absolutely do so. The second thing that you can do as a provider is use living room language. So um, this is, it's, I just told you not to do that in terms of volume, and now I'm telling you to do it in terms of schedule. Uh, if you use the traditional medication, like medical speak of TID or three times a day or every eight hours, some families will interpret that as needing to wake a kid up in the middle of the night to get the, the third dose in. And so the AAP and other institutions have recommended sort of a living room language approach to, you know, morning, noon, evening, and bedtime so that families understand, you know, just before breakfast, around lunch, in the afternoon when they get home from school, and then bedtime. Or if it's twice a day, Day, like, do you want it in the morning at bedtime or do you want it in the morning in the afternoon? Something like that. And so I would encourage using that kind of language for the purpose of schedule and then doing everything you can to not give complicated regimens if you can <laughs> avoid it. <laughs> no, we recently had that. My One of my sons had pink eye and he got... Um, polymixin B trimethoprim yeah. and it has to be mm -hmm. dosed multiple times a day and it was driving my wife crazy she's like yeah. do I have to make sure that I am I driving to school to give him the eye drops and I like it was like this this whole thing and I was like oh my gosh this is like horrible I know so when I brought my first child home I thought I was all set I was a board certified pediatrician at the time I you know I was like this is gonna be it's gonna be cake and <laughs> being a parent not, I didn't, okay, sorry. I did not think parenting was going to be cake. I did think that infancy would be the easiest part because all I had to do was keep her alive. <laughs> you know, now that I'm, now that I'm negotiating like discipline and TikTok and like, like I, it has definitely gotten harder, but I thought infancy would be easy. And it's just, you take the child home and you realize just how much you have no idea about. And practical strategies to like get your family through the day when one or more of them need to be on scheduled medications the you know it it was so easy to to prescribe those things when I was a resident without children of my own and now that I'm on the other side of it trying to do that sometimes I'm like oh gosh I don't know how people again I don't know how people of limited health literacy manage to get it right it is a credit to these amazing families that they step up and learn all that they need to to take care of children who are on chronic medications because it is so challenging and we don't make it easy. We can make it easier though, I promise. <laughs> and some of these I imagine extrapolate to not just the the frequency of dosing, but the number of medications. I don't know if that's evidence-based, but I imagine, you know, oh, for sure. sometimes some of the med lists, you know, when the, there's vitamins and bowel regimens and, mm -hmm. you know, some of these medicines are very important. Some of these medicines are not that important. Do yeah. you have like a de-prescribing spiel or stick that you uh, uh, tell students, trainees, or families, patients? A de-prescribing shtick? Yeah, or like uh, a, a a shtick on having too many medications that are not yeah. necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, Polypharmacy. Or, yeah, so yeah. I don't, that's a good question. I don't have a prepared like patter or shtick for that other than to tell people um, that, you know, it, 
it's exactly as you prescri- as you describe. The more medicines that someone is on, the more likely it is that a family, um, that a caregiver is going to make an error, uh, or that honestly that we're going to make an error too. For sure. So I talked a little bit about transitions of care earlier and big transitions of care are like when someone comes into the hospital or leaves the hospital and the medication reconciliation we do at that time is critical and is also a super likely, super common place where we get it wrong. I think one of the biggest challenges is that we have no one gold standard source for truth. So families may report one thing, the recent clinic visit note from the neurologist may describe a different regimen, the pharmacy may have dispensed something with a different prescription on it, and so you're left there trying to figure out which of those things is most accurate. But as you point out, that's also an opportunity, particularly on discharge, to deprescribe or at least take things off the medication list. The number of times I see in the hospital, because in one of my roles, I end up doing my own medication reconciliation when someone leaves the hospital. And the number of times I see old antibiotic prescriptions that are left on the med rec list from like a year or two ago, you know, an otitis in 2018. And I'm just like that, you know, it's just noise. It's noise keeping us from understanding what the person really is supposed to be on. So I, that's a good point. I should maybe um, get on my soapbox about that a little bit more <laughs> because you're absolutely <laughs> right. The more medicines you're on, it is evidence-based. The more medicines you're on, the more likely it is that they'll make an error, you or the family. And uh, we should all be empowered to listen when families say that they're not taking those things anymore and take it off the list. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one question I have for you is, um, you know, what what should families know about medication safety? And do you have any advice that you you routinely give to families um, about how to kind of help help them manage regardless of their level of health literacy about about having their kids be safe with these medications we're prescribing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The biggest thing that I counsel families is that their version of the med list should be the gold standard one to the best of their ability and to treat it like a religious tract. (laughs) You know, it's it's gold, it's invaluable. Um, They're the ones who know, even down to the most minute detail, like if you come into the emergency department and you have this med list knowing when the last time the child got a specific dose. Are they due now? Are they due yesterday? Are they due later? So having that medication list and keeping it up to date and accurate is one of the most powerful ways that families can successfully communicate with the physicians that they're going to interact with all throughout the healthcare system when those physicians may not be familiar with their child. And then the other thing that I tell families is it is my job to make sure that they understand how to safely give the medicines. And I also say it is really common that families have questions about this because it's so confusing. What questions do you have? for me. And I just try and set it up like if you don't have questions, then you must be a super genius. But, you know, what questions do you have? And um, one thing that I probably don't do often enough is empower families to talk to the pharmacist when they get a prescription filled. Um, Because I think families will often, you know, the pharmacist will hand them the bag at CVS or whatever and say, do you have any questions? And families are just like, no, it's fine. I'm like, no, make... pull out the medication, look at it, make sure you understand, because I just told you all this information about what this medicine, how we're supposed to give this medicine to your child. Make sure that the instructions on that label match what what you think. Because, I mean, this is a whole other kettle of fish, but um, it's pharmacies can actually change the labeling information on a prescription. I don't think prescribers, this is one of those things that providers don't even know, but if you write a prescription for 100 milligrams of medication X and the pharmacy has it in a different concentration than the one you prescribed, well, the volume instructions on the bottle may be different from what you told the family in your clinic. The other thing is that you may have written a prescription for 100 milligrams of medication X or 500 milligrams, but the pharmacy can actually write 0.5 grams if they want to. And then the family was told it's 100 milligrams of this and I want you to give 5 milliliters and now they're getting 0.1 grams of something and they're being told to give 2.5 milliliters. I mean, families should under, like they should, they should feel empowered to ask questions about why it's different from what their doctor counseled them. I, I think this is, I, I also forget to have 
encourage patients to talk to the pharmacy. I feel like I feel like pharmacists just in general are like one of the most underutilized, overtrained oh resources completely in all of agree. healthcare. Completely uh, outpatient agree. or inpatient. It's not, yes, they're so um, valuable. And we so should valuable. lean on them so yeah. heavily, especially in the inpatient world where we have such ready access to them. Lean on your pharmacist. If you don't know what a medication is, call them. If you don't understand the dosing regimen, <clears throat> call the pharmacist. They have access, at least at our institution, they have access to all these pieces of information behind the scenes that I've like never seen before. They're, they can call other pharmacies and get all this back data about when a prescription was filled and how it was filled and all this stuff. They And, you know, it offloads. Everybody is so busy. Like, use your team. The, the pharmacist sure. is just... <laughs> for sure. That person is there. They have this expertise. They went to school for a really long time. You know, you use your expertise and then use that person's expertise. Yeah. I, um, that's a, I feel like that's a great pearl of, like, uh, using the pharmacist, outpatient or inpatient. And at the beginning of the the recording, you had mentioned that, you know, there were a few things that providers can do now to prevent medication errors or, or, or say li- save lives. And uh, we've talked about a few, but I, I want to see, I want to make sure that we're, we're hitting everything. What are some of the things that you think all providers should know about medication safety? Or what are some of these things that, that we can do and change our practice to, to be better about medication safety? Yeah, um, great. We have talked about a lot of them, and I have a big list, but I'll try and hit the big ones. Um, I think that both in written form when you are writing prescription and also when you're communicating with families, make sure you understand all of the ele- required elements of a prescription or an order, and that you actually communicate that in living room language, with the exception of vernacular about teaspoons. <laughs> communicate that with families. So make sure it's complete. This is the medication. Uh, You know, one place I think that we fail is we don't tell families indication all the time. I think we tell indication a lot when it comes to an as-needed medication, like use this this acetaminophen as needed. Um, But if we say, oh, I'm going to prescribe this antibiotic, we just assume that the family understands why we're giving it. And so it should, you know, this is the medication, this is the indication, this is the dose, this is the, it's going to be three times a day, so breakfast, lunchtime, and bedtime. um, I want you to give this for 10 days. Uh, I, I'm worried, I want you to watch out for the following side effects. And I want you to, you know, the purpose of this medication is to help your child get over this infection. And when we are finished with this medication, I, you know, you can, you don't have to go into this detail, but like you could even tell families, like, then you throw it in the trash. You know, a lot of families don't know what to do with their leftover medicines. Um, so, in written form and in in verbal communication being as explicit and complete as possible. And if you don't know what all the the elements of a prescription are or all the elements that need to happen in that conversation, then there's some great resources from the AAP and, um, or just email me (laughs) and I'll I'll tell you. Um, The other thing that we haven't touched on, but I think is really important, both inpatient and outpatient is logical dosing. So we talked about weight-based dosing and the fact that you might need to give 127.5 milligrams of something because a kid weighs 12.75 kilos or something. Please round, <laughs> round. please round uh, to yeah. a logical yes, yes, yes. dose. A pet, yeah. Not only is a parent not going to draw up 127 milligrams of anything, but not even a nurse is going to do that. <laughs> so don't pretend mm. like anyone's getting 127.5 milligrams of anything. Just give 125 or 150. The therapeutic windows are usually pretty big, but give something reasonable, you know, something that rounds to the nearest half a cc or whole cc so that people can do rational dosing. Um, That is actually would be of huge benefit to helping people understand, you know, and, and not require too much brain power. We said it was okay to discontinue medications. We talked about medication reconciliation. And I I think that the so those are the the things I have this whole list. But again, if you wanted to start doing really powerful things today, being complete with your communication, written and verbal, rational rounding everywhere for everyone's sake. Um, 
and then really empowering families to ask questions early and often to make sure that the communication was as complete as you thought it was um, with you and with the pharmacist, Making setting the expectation that everyone has questions about this stuff because it's complicated. What are your questions? And getting them out there and making sure, because everyone at some point is gonna be, have low health literacy, either because they're stressed or because they don't speak the language you're speaking, which is another thing, but you have to communicate in the preferred language of the person you're speaking with. That is also mandatory. And so these things do take a little bit more time than than you've probably been putting into it, but it is it doesn't take any more money. It takes a little bit more time. And if you it's one of those things that if you practice and, and make part of your muscle memory, it does get faster and then it takes less time over the course of your career. And you will have saved morbidity for sure and if you're you know I don't want to scare people but every once in a while these strategies are the kind of thing that can actually save a mortality so as someone who has watched a kid with pretty horrifying flecainide toxicity in the PICU because of a tenfold overdose I do not wish that on anyone <laughs> I always double check my flecainide dosing that right <laughs> Double check it and double check the, the volume and the concentration. <laughs> yeah. We have some providers in our clinic that are, uh, I should do more, but that will take a small syringe, mark, uh, you know, the 3.5 milliliters for uh, acetaminophen dosing. Although I will say now I'm a little even more hesitant. I imagine the concentrations of acetaminophen and ibuprofen in pharmacies are more standardized but those are actually yeah those are have actually been standardized by law and so i don't think there's any acetaminophen product out there that's not 160 milligrams per five cc's um but i and i think that i think this concentration of um ibuprofen has also been standardized but those are like the only two um so those are the only ones you can use the syringe marker Yeah. But you know what I really, so when I was a resident, one of the clinicians I rotated with used to make it part of his well child check visits. So every time a family brought their kid in for a well child check and they got a new weight and a new height and a new mark on their growth chart, um, he would just say, okay, so if you need it, at this point in your child's life, this is how much acetaminophen he should get. And this is how... Oh, that's awesome. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like not, it wasn't in, it wasn't like, didn't wait until the kid was sick for the family to ask. Because there is also literature showing that families don't understand the charts on the back of the box from acetaminophen and ibuprofen. And so they can get that wrong. You know, I I know... Sometimes they don't ask. Like if they got a prescription for Tylenol or acetaminophen like last year... They'll just pull the same one out yeah. and right. give the same dose yeah. that they gave the kid who was yes. like a completely different weight. Right, so. because they have no idea about weight-based dosing, as we talked about before. And some of those, the, you know, the the charts on the back of some of those boxes will have the weight, but for some boxes, they'll have the age instead, like age two to four, give this much, age, you know, five and up, give this much. And so um, anything we can do, even for over-the-counter medicines to, to guide families. In fact, if you have... Um, a like a really critical medication like Justin you were talking about like some of those medicines are really important some less so but if you have somebody who's and you know I'm not I don't usually prescribe anti-epileptic drugs but um, if something like that literature shows that one of the best strategies in that scenario is actually to teach and show a family how much you mean when you say that I want the kid to get 150 milligrams or you know five milliliters and show them what you mean and show them how to draw it up um and then again i think it's really important to empower them to talk to the pharmacist when they pick it up because it would be horrifying if the person got a different concentration from the pharmacy than than uh what they had in the clinic and then they leave there with a misunderstanding of the volume that should be administered so teach back and read back yeah as always as in all things medical communication yeah I think those are good reminders, especially again with the the pharmacist. And I, I love the well child visit and uh, doing acetaminophen and ibuprofen dosing. And actually, Chris, the one person that I've seen do that consistently was our shared resident, uh, Dr. Kinsey Daniels, uh, who was in Ohio and then uh, over at Rhode Island. And so, um, yeah, is a good uh, uh, shout out to her because that was yeah. that is something that I think about doing in my practice. Yeah, and you could, you know, you wouldn't have to 
necessarily calculated for every kid. You, if you were an outpatient provider, you could just make a table and then e- print it out. We print out like a hundred copies, and then every time somebody came in for a well child check, you could put the kid's name, the date, and circle where they are on the table. And then you don't have, you know, just be like, oh, it's 2022. It's time so for the whole QI project. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. where are the med I, I students why... and residents yeah. in the audience who want to do a QI <laughs> yeah. project? I mean, why can't that be done? I mean, yeah. like when, you know, back when I was doing a lot more inpatient peds, every kid who got admitted, they got a special page that got printed off with all their doses for for rapid response. Yeah. Because, and it was just oh, automatically huh. there. Yeah. And the code I mean, sheet, we have it in the PICU too. Like if you're... 10 kilos your code sheet has you know yeah and we could do so we do it all the time on the inpatient oh, side huh. it's so easy to do it on we're just talking about two medicines ibuprofen and acetaminophen and if your kid weighs 15 kilos or 20 kilos because again you're rational rounding with these drugs you don't need to give the right, 12.873 right. kilo dose um yeah. so yeah yeah <laughs> all right someone's got to do that someone's got to do and, that <laughs> yes Audience, we've given you a project. Get, <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> Seriously, in your copious amounts of free time. Yeah. <laughs> and when you publish the QI, you have to cut the curb. Seriously. Yeah. That's, all, that's all we ask. <laughs> um, you know, I think we've talked about this a, a bit. Um, and I think your point of, um, you know, uh, like medical literacy is really contextual to like the moment. Um, and it's something that we all have a variable amount of at any given point of the day or middle of the night, um, if it, if it comes to that. Right. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, something that I've encountered, um, is that there can be more medication errors when there is more on, when there are more unfilled gaps in medical literacy or inadequate interpreter services is, is also, um, you know, a significant problem, um, that I, I've experienced. And I guess, in terms of just like any advice or innovations that you've been part of to kind of help mitigate specifically these, these acts, these, you know, issues of inequity um, regarding medication safety from your perspective. So I think the tool that comes immediately to mind and it may not address all of what you're getting at with your question about um, inequity is um, at Montefiore, they just published this, like, I think it was one of the articles I sent you, actually, Becca. Um, they published an intervention that was aimed at discharge medication reconciliation and making discharge from the hospital safer, particularly discharge from the inpatient area of the hospital as opposed to like discharge from the emergency department. And their intervention was uh, a bundle of three things. They educated all of the folks in the hospital about their project and what they were hoping to achieve from a communication standpoint with families. They leveraged their EMR and made a bunch of changes to that that not everybody could do. But then they um, trained everyone in a standard form of communication around medications at the time of discharge. And it has all of the elements that we were talking about. So the acronym they used is MedRights. So M stands for medication name. E is engage the family. By engage the family, they meant asking the family if they'd ever heard of the medication before or knew anything about it, which makes sense if you're doing medication reconciliation on discharge and some of those medicines the child may already have been on when they came into the hospital. So you say, you know, do you understand? So this Asmonex, you've heard of this before? Are we on the same page with this stuff? Yes? No? And then dose, like, oh, your dose has changed or your dose remained the same. R is for root because uh, to your point about healthcare literacy, if you don't explain that an antibiotic for an ear infection is supposed to be taken by mouth, some families will put it in the ear. Uh, and then there's treatment failure and the potential complications of that. Um the indications for taking, so this is your antibiotic for your ear infection, and again, that, that struck me when I read this paper um, as such a simple thing that I had not been doing consistently. Um, I think we do it all the time for as-needed medications. If there's pain, give this. If there's fever, give that, and we don't do it for scheduled medications, and we really should. Um, the timing, so that's sort of like frequency, and then uh, the side effects, and uh, 
storage. So like keep the syringe next to the bottle. Don't lose this. This is how you're going to be able to accurately give the medicine your child needs. And so though if using a standardized approach, making sure you give the correct elements to every family in the language that is their preferred language um, is your best chance to make sure that you mitigate outpatient medication errors. And frankly, inpatient ones. You know, we've had um, lots of families catch a nurse right before a medication is about to be administered because they are seeing something that wasn't quite right. Either the timing was off or the syringe looked too full or too, you know, and so we, we hear about stuff like that through our pediatric medication safety team and realize that families who actually understand what their kids are supposed to be getting are, an, you know, a total ally and an additional layer of safety even in the hospital. This is great. I, um, a quick time check. I think this is, we're perfect on time and transitioning to, I was going to start wrapping up and ask for take-home points. Anything else though? Any other major uh, broad topics that we feel like we need to hit on before uh, we go to take-home points? I don't think so. I think once people, if I think it is so important to get the basics that we've been talking about down, but if people are already doing that, then there's um, good evidence to support the more advanced techniques like actually demonstrating how to draw up a medication and showing people what a syringe looks like and drawing pictures. Even this sort of gets to healthcare literacy and and language barriers too, Becca, is if you draw a picture of a clock and kind of say, all right, at 0800, you give this. And then at noon, you know, and so using those things that pictorial reminders work really well for um, families with limited healthcare literacy or literacy of any kind. And so those advanced techniques are things that people can also do uh, with a little bit of extra time and but starting today with no extra education or real investment um, that that can really help families get it right. I think those are these are great tips and I think these are great things that are applicable both outpatient inpatient uh, and just improving communication in general. We've talked on a lot of these like you mentioned interventions that providers can do now to save lives. What what are big picture the main take-home points that uh, you think are important for our listeners? to to leave this podcast with? Um, so I, I think I like mostly touched on them, but I guess I would say, since I've been harping on communication and all the things that providers can do, I would also say that um, we touch on this a little bit. I think it's so important. You're not alone. Nobody's practicing medicine in a vacuum. If you aren't certain about how to communicate with a family or communicate, you know, you have interpreters, you have video interpreters, you have family and patient patient liaisons. Uh, if you're uncertain in this about this medication or dosing or whatever, lean hard on your pharmacist because that's all they want to talk about. <laughs> they love medicines. And so use your whole team. You don't have to do this stuff alone. And then also be confident and reassured that people like me, I'm not the only one out there interested in this, obviously. Um, there are a lot of people all across the country that are very interested in making this safer and are lobbying with the AAP to get things like universal concentrations. So that it doesn't change from but inside the hospital to the outpatient pharmacy and uh, universal labeling requirements and mandating that liquid medications be dispensed with a syringe. So um, we didn't mention this, but we were sort of alluding to it. Liquid medicines obviously are more error prone than tablets are and um, are far more typically involved with errors than tablets. So there are please be reassured that there are people trying to do things on a much more like systematic level so that we can make the system safer and easier for providers and patients. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, And then our final question, anything that uh, you think we should plug or anything that you want to have our listeners check out uh, uh, website resource, um, Anything to, anything to plug for the people that listen to the show? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh, well, in terms of uh, medication safety, I actually don't have like a super... I mean, the AAP, as always, is our source for recommendations and great institutional policies and best practices. And they do have several um, policies and, and statements around medication safety. If you don't, you don't have to take my word for it, <laughs> you can read <laughs> what the AAP has to say about it. 
And then if you're ever out on Cape Cod, do yourself a favor and go fishing and then hit Sunday school up for some ice cream. There's one in Dennisport. There's one in Harwich. It was voted the best place to get ice cream in Massachusetts in 2021. It's super delicious. (laughs) Nice. Good, good plug. Good plug. Yeah. Um, Well, hey, thank you so much for for joining us, uh, sharing your expertise and time. Uh, I think this is a great episode and has a lot of tangible skills that uh, inpatient, outpatient providers at all levels can kind of walk away today and implement. So thank we, you we really so appreciate much. Having thank us. you so much for letting me do this. I think it's so important and I'm so happy that I get to talk to a new audience about it. I really appreciate it. Of course. Well, thank you. Thank you for the time. Yes. Really appreciate it. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice change and knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Becca Raymond Coulter, our executive producer for this episode, Nick Lee, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Becca Raymond Coulter. And this has been Chris, the Chi Manchu. Thank you. Good night. Peace. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.